All right. Well, good morning. Let's try that again. Good morning. All right. Good to see you guys this morning. Uh, this morning we are uh, back, and we're, we're not back, but we're in the book of Galatians. We were in the book of Galatians last week as well. Uh, this will be our last week in the book of Galatians. So we're going to finish out our series in the book of Galatians this week. Um, and then we have some, uh, a series through the parables, so summer in the parables. Summer's almost over, but summer in the parables. We'll look at some parables through the remainder of the summer, and then the plan is to jump into the book of Daniel after that. So that gives you a bit of a snapshot of, of where we're going uh, after this series is over. This, this morning, though, we're in the book of Galatians. We're finishing up the series, Jesus plus nothing equals everything and we're looking at what are the advantages to following Christ what are the advantages to following Christ we have certainly as believers and uh, we are to follow Christ um, and we've looked at some of the ways in which the false teachers have you know called people to follow them and to follow a false gospel but today we're going to end by answering that question what are the advantages to us actually following Christ what are the benefits that are there. Galatians chapter 6 verses 11 through 18 is our text, so let me read that for you. I'll pray and then we'll dive into the message. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. But they desire to have you circumcised, that, you, that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus." The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. God, we come to you this morning thankful for this opportunity as a church to gather together for worship. God, We've worshipped you through the reading of your word, through prayer, through song, God, and now we come to worship you through the preached word. God, as we walk through this message this morning, through this text that you have given us, may we understand it. May we apply it, Lord, as we seek to understand the advantages that we have in following Christ. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, in our day and age, I think it's safe to say that, that most forms of communication are electronic, right? We send text messages, we send emails, uh, we send video messages, we can make video calls now, and many of you probably are just tired of making video calls if, if you're working in corporate America and trying to keep up with all of the different people and your teams and things like that, right? I've heard so many people say we have Zoom fatigue um, from having to make so many video calls, but these are, are just things that we do on a regular basis. And while important topics can be communicated through these digital and, and electronic mediums, uh, I believe that a handwritten letter 
communicates more strongly than electronic letters. And I believe that because you've got to invest a little bit more time, you've got to invest a little bit more energy and thought into these sending an actual handwritten letter to someone than you do with a text message or even with an email. Now, while it's a little bit different, in Paul's day, they, they had letters, and the letters were actually uh, handwritten, but, but many of these letters were not written by the hand of the person who sent them, meaning that Paul did not write, actually physically write, the letters that he wrote. You see, papyrus, uh, you know, what we might consider paper, but they had papyrus back then. It was not as readily available as paper is today, and so... Uh, what these folks would do because of the expense of, of the paper and, and just penmanship and things like that, they would go out and they would hire someone called an amanuensis. And these folks were people who were not necessarily ghost writers, but, but they were people who would physically write the letter. They had much better penmanship than, you know, say Paul or someone else. And they could help the people think through what they wanted to include in the letter so as to maximize the amount of space that they had when they, when they wrote that particular letter because of the expense. And so Paul would, would use these folks in the different areas in which he went. He would use these amanuenses and many other the, the writers here would use these folks who would help them actually write this particular letter. Now, typically, after the letter was finished, you know, the, the author, the person who was actually authoring it, would be Paul and some of the other folks, they would, they would take it and they would literally sign the letter with their own hand. But in this case, with the Galatian letter, Paul doesn't just sign the letter with his own hand. He takes the pen from his amanuensis and he writes the last paragraph of this particular letter. And we see this in verse 11. He says, See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. So essentially Paul tells the Galatians, Look, I've taken the pen from my amanuensis. From here on out, everything that you are going to read is personally written by me by my own hand. Clearly his penmanship is not all that great as he mentions the large letters, but, but penmanship wasn't just his concern. It wasn't his chief concern. It wasn't the point that he was trying to get across. You see, Paul's concern here at the end of the letter was that the Galatians would see the importance of trusting in and daily living out the gospel that they had first heard and they had first believed. He wants the Galatians to be gospel-centered. He wants them to center their life on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he thought that, that taking the pen from his amanuensis, writing this with his own hand, drawing attention to this would help them to sit up and take notice as he finishes this particular letter. And then in his closing appeal, he wants them to see three things. He's going to expose the false teacher's motives. He's going to talk about the advantages of following Christ, and he's going to reveal why we should boast in Christ alone. So we're going to look at those topics one at a time today. First, we'll begin with the false teacher's motives. If you remember the Judaizers, they're, they're the false teachers. They're the ones that, that Paul has been seeking to combat all through the letter that, that he has written. You know, typically letters are meant to be read in, in one go, but here we are. We're working through this over several months worth of time, and so I just want to remind you that the Judaizers, they were the false teachers. The Judaizers were the ones 
who said to the, to the Gentiles, if you want to be a true believer, if you want to be a true Christian, a true follower of Jesus, you not only have to believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but you must be circumcised as well. Not only must you be circumcised, but you must follow some of the dietary laws and, and possibly some of the other Jewish customs that are found you know, in the Old Testament and that are found just in, in, in Jewish society. Essentially, what they were doing is they were adding works to the biblical gospel. And to beef up their case, they brought some accusations against Paul. Some accusations that Paul has been addressing throughout this letter. They accused Paul of, of being a people pleaser. Particularly when it came to the leadership of the Jerusalem church. They also accused him of believing that circumcision was necessary for salvation. The very lie that they are peddling themselves. Now, none of these accusations are true. Paul addresses all of these accusations as you walk through the letter. I didn't believe that, that circumcision was necessary to salvation. He, he, did not, uh, he was not a, a people pleaser at all. I think that would be pretty obvious as you read through the letter to the Galatians, as you read through some of other, uh, Paul's other letters. Right? He is not a people pleaser. And so here at the end, he says, look, I want to expose to you some of the motives that the false teachers have. They not only brought false charges against me, charges that I have combated throughout the letter, but you need to know, as I'm signing off here, why you should not be following them, besides all of the other reasons that he's given us through the book of Galatians. But what's, what's behind it? What are the motives that they have? Look at verse 12. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. And so that should clue us in there. Then down in the second half of verse 13, he writes, But they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. And that reveals another motive. And so these highlight their motives. In the beginning of the verse, Paul tells us that the Judaizers were after these statistical bragging rights. You know, as a pastor, I have the opportunity to go to a number of different pastoral luncheons uh, from time to time, and, and these are meant to, to help you connect with other pastors in the area or pastors in a particular group, and, and really the idea is that you can have some camaraderie with some folks, you can ha have people there who can hold you accountable, as well as help you when it comes to your own spiritual growth and, and, and help you think through things in your own church. These things can be very, very beneficial. But, but I've also found that, that throughout the years, you've got to be pretty selective in the groups that you decide that, that you want to gather together with on a regular basis. Because sometimes these, these meetings, these groups can quick, quickly become you know, places where, where pastors are gathering together to complain to one another, or where they're gathering together to, to brag about how things are going, or, or both. One question that, that you might hear another pastor ask when you go to one of these meetings is, how many are you running out there at your church? Now, I'm not opposed to, to talking about, about numbers uh, when it comes to, to church and, and conversation when that is appropriate, but, but when someone asks you that right off the bat, you know, they introduce themselves to you and like within like one minute in the conversation, they're asking you, how many people are you running out there at your church? Just this complete 
turn off to me, right? All they want to do is brag about what's going on at their church. They, they could care absolutely nothing about what is happening at your church, what is going on at your church. All they're doing is waiting for you to answer so that they can say, well, this is what's going on at my church and this is how many people we have at our church. And here's all the things that I have done. Now, in a similar way, this is what the Judaizers are wanting to do. This is what's motivating them, right? They want to be able to head back to headquarters and report how many Gentiles they have had circumcised in their ministry. Which meant, look, they don't really care about the souls of the Gentiles. They are just another number to them. And I'm afraid that's what might be happening when I encounter a pastor who asks, well, how many are you running out there? You know, as if we're just, you know, herding cattle or, or something like that, right? Do they really care about the souls of the people just as Judaizers don't necessarily care about the souls of the people whom they're seeking here to reach? Now, if being a statistic wasn't enough for the Galatians to be, to be turned off by the Judaizers and to turn away from the Judaizers and the false teaching that they're calling them to, Paul highlights a second motive, and that is the Judaizers changed the gospel in hopes of avoiding persecution. And how did they attempt to avoid persecution? Well, they sought to toe the line between the pagans and the Jews. Now, on the one hand, they added works to the gospel so that, the, so that they would win over the, the pagan opponents because they thought that, that salvation came through works. On the other hand, they included some of the Jewish customs in an effort to experience solidarity and camaraderie with those at the local synagogue. And while that was their plan, you can't ultimately remove the sting of the gospel so as to avoid persecution, right? The gospel is inherently offensive. It's offensive because it tells us that we are too weak, we are too sinful to do anything to contribute to our own salvation. The gospel stands against all forms and all schemes of self-salvation, which means there's really no way to avoid the sting of the gospel except to change its message completely. And that's what, the, that's what Paul wants the Galatians to see. That's what, that's what God wants us to see as He's preserved this letter for us, that those who seek to come and change the message of the Gospel to appeal to the culture or to appeal to some other group, what they're doing is actually changing the Gospel in order to, to avoid persecution. But that's not a Gospel at all. And this is what you see happening in, in the liberal church, right? They, they are bowing to cultural pressure, particularly when it comes to like gender identity and things like that, so that they will not be attacked by the culture. But, but what they're doing is they're not presenting a true gospel. They're not presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ, where it says that we are saved by grace alone and faith alone and Christ alone. They're adding something to that. They're, they're diminishing that. They're watering that down. They're leaving pieces out of the true gospel. And if you do that, you don't have a gospel at all. And so when we look at false teachers, that's often what they do. And we have to understand, well, what is their motive? And their motive is they want to gain people who are followers of them so that they can brag to other folks about all the people that they have coming, and then they want to avoid persecution from 
those around them so that they can continue to do what they are doing to get paid for it, to become rich, to become famous, whatever it is that they're after, whatever it is that they are seeking, so that they, they can continue in that path. And so we have to understand that the motives of the false teachers, these are what they are, and when we see people who are teaching falsely, then we need to make sure that we are not following them. We need to make sure that we are not uh, allowing them access to our life. And Paul says, look, these are the motives. He wants the Galatians to sit up. He wants them to take notice. But that's not all Paul is sharing with us in this letter. Paul also wants us to see, he wants us to see what are the advantages to following Christ. If you're not going to follow the false teachers, if you're not going to follow the false gospel, there needs to be some sort of advantage that you have to following Christ. And he outlines those advantages to us here in the latter part of the letter. And these advantages, they counter the false teachers' message. They provide us with hope. And so what are these advantages? Well, the first advantage is that you don't have to live underneath a standard that you can't meet. And we see this in verse 13. You know, the, the Judaizers, they expected the Galatians to live underneath this, this standard, to live according to the law. And we know that they, they, they wanted that because they taught that you had to accept circumcision. But while following the demands of the law is what the Judaizers wanted the Gentiles to do, we learn in verse 13 that they themselves weren't keeping the law. In the first half of the verse we read, For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. So what does this mean? Well, on the one hand, the Judaizers, they, they did live according to the law, right? They were circumcised. They observed the dietary laws. They lived according to the Jewish customs, observing the feasts and, and other things. And, and while they did some of those things, while, while they were calling the, the Gentile believers to do those things as well, they ultimately failed to keep the law perfectly as to earn salvation. Now remember, back in chapter 3, verse 10, we learn there that, that for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now the key phrase in that particular verse is the idea that you must abide by all things. If we add anything to the gospel, any work, then what we end up doing is we end up nullifying the gospel and we're forced to keep the entire law in order to gain salvation. But, but no one is perfect. We all make mistakes. We are all sinful. We all break the law. Nobody can live perfectly. Nobody can live up to the standard of the law. It is absolutely impossible for you to do that. And so here we see the Judaizers, they're saying, you need to live according to the standard of the law in order to earn salvation. What Paul is pointing out, while these folks are calling you to live according to the standard of the law, to live according to works, they cannot even live up to the standard of the law themselves. So the very standard that they are setting for you, the very standard that they are setting for salvation, is a standard that they cannot even meet themselves. And so they 
are not even earning salvation themselves. But here's the deal. We do not have to live up to this standard. This standard that, that we cannot keep. The Gospel is the good news. And it reveals to us, it reveals to us that, that Jesus has come and Jesus has freed us from the condemnation of the law. Because if we attempt to live according to the law in order to gain salvation, then what happens is that we are condemned. We are condemned unto judgment because we can't keep it. But we don't have to live up to a standard that we can't keep. We don't have to try to meet a standard that we can't keep. As believers in Jesus, we are free to admit that we cannot do it. That we cannot keep the law. That we cannot earn our own salvation according to our works. We are free to proclaim that. We are free to admit that because we have one who has done that for us. Jesus has come and Jesus has died in order to free us from the condemnation of the law because all those who can't earn their salvation through the law, who can make themselves perfect, deserve God's wrath. And Jesus takes that wrath for us. And as those who believe in Jesus as their Lord and as their Savior, they are free. They are free from this. Remember, Jesus plus something, well, that equals nothing. We gain no salvation. But Jesus plus nothing, well, that equals everything. Amen. We gain salvation. That's exactly what Paul wants the Galatians to see. That's exactly what God wants us to see through the preservation of this letter for us today as a church. In Christ, we don't have to live according to a standard that we can't meet. Jesus met that standard for us. Another advantage of following Christ is that we are free from having to follow the world system. In verse 14, the text says this, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now we're going to get to the first part of the verse in a minute, but, but the second part of the verse is what I want to focus in on here in this particular section or this particular point. Paul reveals that the world system does not have a hold on him. And the idea is that the world doesn't have a hold on him. It has these massive implications for the way in which he lives. It means that he no longer looks to the world for hope and for salvation. He no longer needs the approval of other people. He no longer is enslaved by sin or by Satan. All that makes it possible for him to live in the world for God. He can be countercultural without having to worry about what others think about him or what others can, can do to him. He can seek to please God and to expand his kingdom. He can be a force for the gospel as well as he can enjoy the things that the world has to offer because he's not finding hope, he's not finding salvation, ultimate joy or peace in the things of the world. They are what they are and he can enjoy them for that. You see, as those who are believers in Jesus, we don't have to live as ascetics. We don't have to live as those who, who seek... you know who basically cast off all things that the world has to offer. We don't have to live as some monk in a monastery who never experiences the joys that this world 
has, right? We can watch movies and we can go to the park and, and we can we can you know do all kind of different things as believers. We don't have to be ascetics, people who are seeking to punish ourselves and, and limit ourselves in certain ways. But at the same time, and, and to balance that idea out, we we are not to be idolaters either. We're not to find our hope. We're not to find our peace. We're not to find our salvation. We're not to find our purpose and meaning in the things of the world. We keep those things in balance. On the one hand, we're not ascetics, but on the other hand, we're not idolaters. We are those who who see the world for what it is. We, We understand that the world is sinful. And as we we look at the world through the lens of the Bible, through a gospel-centered lens, we are able to put the world in its proper perspective. And we are able to enjoy the world where where we're free to enjoy it. We're able to, to push off the world where we need to, where it's sinful and it's calling us into sin. Or, or where we are seeking our, our hope and purpose and meaning in the world as we stay focused on Christ and Christ alone. You see, in Christ we are freed from having to follow the world system and we are able to live in the world in which God has designed for us to live because we understand God's will for us. We understand God's desire for us. We understand God's purpose for our lives. We don't have to fear the world. We don't have to try to gain meaning from a meaningless world. We can enjoy the world in the way that God has designed for us to enjoy it instead of making it an idol. That's one of the advantages that we have in following Christ. We're free from having to follow the world system. We're able to put the world in its proper perspective. Another advantage of following Christ is that we are a new creation and we have a new creation for which to look forward. Look at verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. You see, when, when we believe in Jesus as our Lord and as our Savior, we are made anew. Essentially, we are changed from the inside out. Our desires, our will, are brought in line with God's. And as Christians, we can say that, that we are a new creation. And as those who are created anew, we look forward to a time when the world in which we live will be created anew as well. The world is not all there is. The world is not all there ever will be. When Jesus returns, He is going to change the world. It will become a new creation. It will become a a creation that is free from the effects of sin and Satan. And all of those who are blessed to live in this new world will be new creations as well. You see, we are are made anew now. Our, Our heart, our will is changed now as we believe in Jesus as our Lord and as our Savior. But we still have the effects of the sinful body, right? We still are battling against this. There's this battle that is going on in our flesh. Some days, some moments, we win that battle. Other moments, we fail. We we sin. We, We rebel against God. Even as believers who have been changed by Jesus now, who have the Holy Spirit, we can still grieve the Spirit. We can still rebel against God. But we have the power to live unto Christ. We have the power to follow the Spirit, to walk in step with the Spirit, as we've talked about as we've worked through the book of Galatians, to cast off the desires of the flesh. 
to live according to the Spirit. We have that power now. But we're not completely perfect. We're not completely glorified as, as Christ is, is glorified. We're not completely free from the sinful body in which we live. We're still affected by that. But when Jesus returns, he, we, will, we will be changed. We will be completely perfect. We will, we will live as those who are perfect. And the world in which we live in, yes, the world in which we live in, we won't just float in some ethereal space for all the rest of eternity. We will live in a recreated world in the way in which God has originally designed and purposed for us to live worshiping Jesus and living according to God's will and God's way for all of eternity. And as believers in Jesus, we have that to look forward to. You see, the world in which we live, I mean, this is, not, this is not heaven. There are times and there are moments when we get glimpses of what the world to come will be like. There are times when you are with your family, when you are with your friends, when you are on vacation, or even just sitting out in your backyard enjoying a, a cup of coffee and in the cool of the morning. When you're gathered together with other believers for worship. You're praising God. There are times when we get glimpses of this new world to come. There, there, there are opportunities where we see that. We experience that. Take that and magnify that for all of eternity. And even, even more than, than we could even understand now. And experience now. And that's what the world to come will be like. As Jesus makes everything perfect. As Jesus makes everything new. And as believers in Jesus, we have the advantage of experiencing that now and looking forward to that in an even greater way in the future. The last advantage that this text provides us, and there are many more advantages, but the last advantage to following Christ is that we will experience true peace and mercy. Look at verse 16. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. And the rule to which Paul refers to is, is living according to the gospel. Living a gospel-centered life. When the gospel is our foundation for life, then we experience true peace and we experience true mercy. We experience the mercy of God. It's poured out on us. We experience peace. Peace with God. There's, there's not this wrestling and, and angst that is continuing in our soul. We experience true peace with God as well as we are a part of God's people, the Israel of God. We are grafted into. We become the nation of God. And if you long for peace, if you long for mercy, if you long to experience true salvation, then, then what you do is you don't move on from the Gospel. You don't move on from faith alone in Christ alone. That's the way that we receive the mercy of God. That's the way that we experience peace that's beyond all comprehension. We, we remain in the Gospel. We continue in Christ. It's not that the Gospel is just this like entrance into or key into the Christian life and now we've got to go over here and, and do all these other things in order to make ourselves better Christians. No, we continue in the Gospel. We don't move past the gospel, we always reflect on the gospel and we allow that to change us. 
We allow that to inform us. We allow that to motivate us each and every single day to live for Christ. These then are the advantages to following Christ. And and seeing these as advantages to following Christ, well, that leads to the last point, is that we should boast in Christ alone. Look back at the verse 14 again, the beginning of the verse. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here Paul reveals that his soul boast, his soul boast is in Christ. It's not in his abilities. It's not in anything or anyone else. It is in Christ alone that Paul boasts. Christ alone is his hope. And that should be the same for us. We should boast in Christ alone. Because it is Jesus alone who provides us with true freedom. It's Jesus alone who provides us with hope and joy and peace and mercy and grace and salvation. It is Jesus alone that provides us with the salvation for which we all long. The salvation for which we all want. And so we should not boast in anyone or anything else but Christ alone. He alone must be our boast. He alone must be the one that we praise. He alone must be the one that we follow. He alone must be the one that we exalt in worship. Christ alone. And if we truly understand the Gospel, if we truly grasp the Gospel and the greatness of it, then Jesus alone will be our boast. Jesus alone will be the one that we praise and worship and boast in alone for the rest of our lives. These are the things that Paul wants the Galatians to see. That Paul wants the Galatians to sit up and take notice of as he he takes the pen from his amanuensis and he writes out the last bit of the letter. These are the things that we should sit up and take notice of as we finish this series in the book of Galatians. We cannot and we must not add anything to the Gospel. Jesus plus nothing truly equals everything. And my hope is that as we close this sermon series today, that we will understand that. That we will understand that it's Jesus plus nothing that equals everything. That we can't and we mustn't add anything to the Gospel. That it is Jesus who saves. That it is Jesus who sanctifies. And it is Jesus alone who glorifies us. It is His work that brings about change in our lives. It is His work that provides us with hope for the future. It is in Him alone that we should boast. And that we should be about pleasing and glorifying. That's my prayer. That's my prayer that as we finish this book to the Galatians, that we would boast in Jesus alone. That we would see that Jesus plus nothing truly equals everything. That we would trust in Him and Him alone. And that's how you can respond to this message today. If you're a believer, you can respond today by boasting in Jesus alone. By continuing to trust in Jesus alone. By setting your affections on Him and only on Him. By removing all other idols out of your life. And believing in Jesus alone. And following Him alone. Finding your hope and your peace and your salvation in Jesus alone. And if you're not a believer here today, 
man, today, today is an opportunity for you to respond in that way as well. To turn to Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior and to say, you know, I've sought salvation in all of these other things. I've sought peace and mercy. I've sought goodness. I've sought to earn my own salvation, but I cannot do it. I, I am down at the bottom. But I'll turn to Jesus. And in Jesus alone will I experience true peace, true mercy, true joy. Jesus has come. He has sacrificed Himself for you. He has become a curse on your behalf so that you might be able to experience salvation. So that you might be able to experience peace and mercy and hope. And won't you turn to Jesus today? Won't you believe in Jesus today? Won't you make Him your only boast today? These are the ways in which we can respond. Both believers and non-believers. Turn to Jesus. Follow Him. Rest in Him alone. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank You. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the book of Galatians, God. We thank You for all that we have learned as we have walked through this, God. But as we finish here today, help us to see that it is in Jesus alone that we should boast. It is in Jesus alone that we should turn for salvation and to nothing else that we wouldn't add anything to the Gospel, that we would truly trust in the work that Jesus has done on our behalf. Lord, help us, God, to see that. Help us to praise You for that. And God, if there's someone here today or watching who, who doesn't know You as their Savior, Lord, may You work in their hearts here this morning. May You draw them to Yourself so that they alone, that they too will will boast in Christ alone. That they too will experience the peace and the freedom and Your mercy that we as believers have experienced. That we as believers champion. That we sing praises to You for. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.